we launched it. We waited a period of time. We got reviews from the forums and stuff like that. And sure enough, it, lo- it looked okay. So we updated to it. But after a couple of weeks, we realized there was something wrong with it. It ended up being kind of a little technical quirk in the platform. And to be able to determine the timing of that technique took us just, just weeks in itself. And we had to notify the main programmer who developed the software. And they didn't even know what was happening. They took them weeks to be able to figure out why it was happening. And in the process, we, we, we had a lot of disruption to our billing platform, which is probably the scariest thing for any company. My name is Seth Maddox, and I'm the co-owner of Apex Hosting. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Seth Maddox created the foundational Minecraft hosting company with world-class support. All this and more on Code Story. Seth Maddox is a 33-year-old single dude with a degree in finance living in St. Petersburg, Florida. Both of his parents were computer coders, so some of his earliest memories in life are watching his mother type on a keyboard as he fell asleep. And he can't remember life without a gaming console of some sort. When he was 12, he and his friends created their crew concept of we don't ever want to stop gaming. They decided, when they were in their early 20s, that they wanted to build a business system that would allow them to game forever. Seth is an avid rock climber, cycler, he likes to visit breweries, he likes to cook and network in local entrepreneur communities. He spends a lot of time on a boat or the beach with his girlfriend, most recently doing some scalloping, which is a pretty rad date night. Combined with his desire to game forever, he and his partners approached the gaming community applying real estate concepts with digital hosting. They started a Minecraft hosting company with the best support in the industry. This is the creation story of Apex Hosting. We really started this with a focus on support. It is what we claim to be as our competitive advantage and our value-added proposition, is that we have the best support in the industry. What this ends up coming down to mean is that we have live chat, we have video and written tutorials in volume. The way that we came around this as being our value-added proposition and why we end up creating this company is kind of twofold. Uh, There was a little bit earlier when I told you about our desire to make video game companies. So we're always looking for opportunities and we have multiple companies in the video game space. But Apex Hosting itself was kind of to entertain the idea of Robert Kiyosaki's real estate flow where he, he, he made a lot of money through real estate. And we ended up thinking that hosting is a lot like digital real estate. Um, it's not limited as far as the assets are in real estate. You know, there's not, they're not making any more land, but they are making more data centers. And you have the opportunity to be able to lease them and then rent them back out to take the spread. So we took this concept of digital real estate and applied it to video games. Uh, We ended up doing all of our companies based off of a foundation of really deep keyword research. We have thousands of documents back here of various terms and techniques and concepts and products and anything that you can imagine to be able to shove into these tools to be able to scrape out what type of keywords are available online. And what I mean by keywords is Google itself has a core tool which allows you to be able to search for things that are searched for. 
This is incredibly valuable because now you can understand the intent of people that are using the tool. And instead of assuming what you're going to build and assuming that you understand what people want and having that depth of personal understanding, which gives you this kind of visionary product, we ended up deciding to go by the data. We use these keyword tools to be able to find opportunities based on volume of traffic and then competitive nature of that traffic. This has helped us in multiple different websites. We currently have OPC, like I just mentioned. We have Apex Hosting, and then we have a, a car company website where you can get car repair costs. All of these are based around the, the idea of ranking for as many organic keywords as you possibly can in order to ensure a foundational traffic, which is in essence free. This was the foundation of our experience as far as our, our client agency that we began with and how we figured out some of the various opportunities to find. But the opportunities themselves that we were looking for were always kind of in the video game space pointing around various types of variations of video games, whether it be products or services and things like that. What led us into Apex Hosting specifically was kind of a serendipitous point of events. In our process of learning all this keyword research and stuff and being the gamers that we are, and in this case, John's previous experience working with this, this eSports sports education tool that I started helping with, we ended up coming across a client that actually had a company in the space. We helped them for a period of about six months or so, and then they got taken offline through a lawsuit because the largest brand in the space had a naming conflict with their name. This basically put them out of business, and we lost a client. So in, in order to kind of reclaim a little bit of the foundational work that we've done and to leverage a lot of the opportunity that we saw, we decided to sit down and see if now that we no longer have conflict of interest, maybe we could try to do this too. Based on the experience that we had doing web hosting and making probably 80 plus different WordPress websites at this time, we were able to kind of put together an MVP for a hosting company in the course of about a weekend. Tell me about the MVP. So that first product you you built, how long did it take to build it? And what sort of tools did you use to get it off of the ground? You ever hear that story of Picasso? Like he's sitting there doodling on a, on a napkin and they asked to buy it. And he's like, sure. And he quotes this huge price. And they're like, but you just wrote it on the napkin. It's like, it's not the time it took me to write on the napkin. It's the time it took me to learn how to draw what I drew. And so similarly, it took us many years in order to learn how to develop a lot of these tech tools and websites and stuff, of course, and to kind of be able to learn how to position it just right. But as far as the technical like time it took to be able to build the, the core system for the MVP, it literally was two days. We already had the understanding of the type of tools that we could use. It was just a matter of piecing them together and filling in the gaps. With a lot of these systems online right now, with a lot of the open source projects and various NPM type package manager systems, you have this opportunity to pull in pre-made tools and kind of piece them together. We ended up leveraging that concept to be able to create a, a quick and dirty MVP where we ended up creating a WordPress website. And, and mind you, this is all on one single server. So we had one dedicated server and on it we put WordPress, a backend panel system called WHMCS. It's a complete solution software attached to one of the most popular website tools called WHM. A majority of the website runs on WHM and they use cPanel to issue their servers. Well, WHM has WHMCS, which allows you to actually turn WHM into a hosting solution. And then from that, you're able to find various modular panels to be able to put in and create a panel type setup that if you do the server generation part bit, you can actually start rolling orders and stuff like that. The system itself, though, is, is extremely limited. But initially, though, it did what we needed it to do. It gave us the, the, the front end foundation to check some of our ad campaigns. It allowed us to funnel to a cart and that cart converted and actually populated a service. We were able to use this to be able to run ads on, to be able to test if anybody actually even wanted this. 
And sure enough, people were buying it so we could able to position ourselves further for those keywords and reinforce our investment in the project. I remember when we first got it, actually, there's an, there's an alternate part of this where the system itself is made up of, of, of several parts. There's the front end side of it, the panels, the websites, the things like that. There's the node architecture side of it. And then there's the support side of it. And then you could probably throw in the marketing in there as well. And learning how to create each of these in a balanced way where we were able to run it with just two people was really the hurdle in the in the very beginning. We ended up taking the node system the way we found it. It was probably the most creative bit that we got in the beginning. All of this is, is about real estate, right? Like we initially talked about digital real estate. It's about finding value in the sale. You need to be able to find an asset that is undervalued to be able to then reoffer at an in- increased value because of whatever you're adding to the service. If you're getting a house, you're probably going to find something with bad bathrooms and a kitchen. You're going to refurb it and you're going to sell it for more. In this scenario, we had to find products or, or in this case, server space that was cost effective enough, but still had the services that we need in the regions that we needed it in. And that's actually rather difficult. Um, there's a lot of third party services on the internet. There's the first party providers, there's the second party you know, services, and then there's the third party people that kind of dip into that second tier. We didn't want to be the third tier. We wanted to be the second tier. In order to do that, you have to find the, the, these larger server providers, and they're, they're not usually very well marketed. In order to find them, you have to do a little bit of digging. So we ended up doing some competitor research and found the largest person in the space. And we ended up doing a little digging and found one of the IPs for their services. We did a reverse IP trace route and found out the city that they're in. We then established what we needed for hardware and Googled the specs and the city, which we found that IP in and ultimately came across a data center. This data center was OVH. It's actually extremely large. It's kind of funny. We couldn't find it initially, but it ended up having a price point that was significantly different than everybody else. Um, And it also had a DDoS protection, which nobody else provided, which was was critical for our system because we get hacked all day, every day on the web servicers, on the nodes, everything. So we ended up finding them. We ended up picking up a service. We called it um, Articuno, I believe, because all of our servers, we decided as gamers, we were going to name them after Pokemon. And we would, would one day hopefully catch them all. (laughs) <laughs> we got our first Pokemon and we put it into the system and we, we opened up our doors uh, all within the course of one weekend. And we started on Friday and by Monday we had the website, the panels, the server wired up and we figured out how to config all the, all the software and it was, it was a usable service. Unfortunately, nobody used it for a month and we had to cancel our very first server. So we sat there with the front end panel and no actual service to provide on the back end. And that kind of existed for maybe two or three weeks and then we finally got our very first conversion. And in doing so, you know, lights go off. And now we're all excited. We run out. We go buy a, a new node. We, we quickly build it. We name it Blastoise. And we throw it um, into the system. And we build them in just a couple minutes. And we finally have our first client. And in that first month, which was in November, we ended up getting 100 clients. And within the second month, we ended up doing 1,000. And it slowly scaled like that until now, we're, uh, seven years later, we're sitting at 50,000 clients sitting across almost 200 countries and a network that's covering about to touch 150,000 petabytes. We could not have gotten there without some of that initial quick work that we did to be able to test the system out. But ultimately, that MVP had a lot of limiting factors, which have become our major kind of roadmap and concerns of, of today. Let's dive into that a little bit. You've already touched on some of them, but in that weekend, you made some decisions and trade-offs when you're building that first prototype. How did you go about that process? And then how did you cope with those decisions You know, of saying, we're going to use this and we're not going to use that, or we're going to build this and we're not going to build that? Tell me about, a little bit more about that. Inherently, all the companies that we make are bootstrap companies. So price is the most important thing to us. 
we started this company off of no more than a thousand dollars we pulled off of a day job so both of us put down a thousand dollars and together we used that to buy the first couple of nodes and pay the server fees and the softwares and things like that we had very little income to be able to apply to a lot of these tools to pay a lot of coders to be able to reach beyond our own technical capacity so in order to uh, achieve what we needed to achieve without being able to fund what we couldn't fund we decided to make some trade-offs as far as pre-made systems were concerned and as far as how many hours we personally would be applying to the project. Because a lot of this is still service. There's still a lot of user management. There's a lot of support that goes into it. There's a lot of setup that goes into it. And we couldn't necessarily pay people to do it. And because we couldn't pay it, we had to make a system that was capable of being managed by just two people. So a lot of our software in the very beginning was mostly just defined as what was the most feature-rich service that we could get for the cheapest price. This constant push to the bottom has ended up giving us a margin that's, that's admirable in the field. It's helped us in a lot of different companies that we've created, but it had given us an initial focus of really rigorously reviewing all the tools because when the cheaper you get, the less features you get. And there's always little quirks. And eventually, if it's too cheap, you have to start negotiating with the SaaS companies that actually produce the tools. And then now you're helping them develop their tools to help you because you're getting such a deal. There's kind of a trade-off that you have to do with the amount of time that it takes versus the cost benefit that you're getting from it. As far as technically concerned and the choices that we made for the software, we know that our ultimate system is going to be a single panel system with a single sign-on and everything unified under a single subdomain. In order to do that, it takes a certain level of custom coding inside of a, probably a Node.js environment that we didn't have access to. I mean, that, that's a couple hundred hours of dev work. That's six months of, of testing. We're doing projects like that on the side for clients in certain ways, but we knew we couldn't afford to be able to pay, you know, $10,000 a month for three, two or three devs to sit down and produce something for six months. So we end up finding these, these widgets basically and piecing them together and then finding small coding fixes, basically patches to be able to kind of cross some bridges and smooth out a lot of user experience issues. Fortunately, being as, a, as I am myself a trained front and web developer, I was able to kind of smash it together to look like a custom platform system. There's a lot of unification of design and experience and a lot of time was spent in kind of masking the fact that it, it's actually multiple tools pieced together. And uh, that cost of the time it took me to do that and the maintenance of that and the user experience of jumping between those different platforms, I think is our greatest trade-off that we gave. Right now, it's ended up to be a scenario where and it, it's small, but we have two different passwords on the website, one for the billing and one for the panel. And this just destroys me. So we, we, we're working in the back in order to unify those systems and then to be able to create a whole new panel on the other side, which has all this kind of rolled in without having the need to do custom patches here and there. One of the opportunity costs, you could say, is the amount of time it took us to, to fix the amount of recurring updates that happens to these platforms. Because I don't, if anybody that's worked with WordPress or any type of version software, you know that they have updates that come out periodically and they don't always update based on your schedule. So you have to kind of stop everything and go and address these changes. There could be security updates that are very important. They could be uh, feature updates, which would be useful that you've been dying for, or they could be fixes to core behavior that are, are critical for you to address, like billing issues and stuff like that. Having to accept a system which we would kind of be under the pressure of another person's development roadmap was probably the biggest long-term issue to us. I like how you put the uh, the WordPress update that it's not always on your schedule. <laughs> I definitely feel that with all my WordPress sites as well. Tell me how you progressed the product. How did you mature it from there? You know, you talked about your conversions and your growth over the next month and people really started, you know, jumping in and using Apex. But how did you progress the product after that? 
Um, initially, we had a pretty bare-bones software. We used kind of the default panel structure with a lot of the tools given, basically. These tools aren't necessarily built by designers. They're kind of just efficiently produced and given out so other people could work on them. It's kind of up to you to be able to optimize it in a way that's best for your independent audience. I think it's, it's true for all softwares. You basically have to provide a, a basic service and then get feedback and start iteratively improving it. And this is, this is what we did. We spent a lot of our time focusing on, on node health, server health, being able to make sure that they're running the, the smoothest and most efficiently on the, on the best hardware. We started with a lot of like E5 1560s. Now we're up to I7 7700s and on Ryzen 7s trying to figure out the right balance of, of RAM to user counts and a lot of server INI optimizations and making sure that we're blocking out the certain amounts of traffic for network security. There's a lot of little improvements as far as stability of the system that I think was our greatest benefit. This industry itself has a lot of competitors. There's a lot of people that can create this raw system like I just described. It takes a weekend for anybody that, with the acumen to be able to put together some basic code stuff. But what really comes to the value of it is the consistent effort over a long period of time and the increasing technical capacity of that team. Really, the, the major change for us was when support got active enough where we could get enough feedback from people where the dev team could start working full-time addressing things whether they're new feature creations or bug fixes or maybe just user experience modifications that that has been just the inevitable flow and i think is true with most software we started with a one server system like i told you and as we got bigger and bigger and bigger and we, we, we started breaking the seven figure levels, we ended up having stability issues and we had to learn how to break up our one server with three platforms into a, a multi-cluster system with a master-slave uh, imaging across Percona clusters through Nginx proxies across 16 regions on a dozen different servers. And in order to be able to run these kind of load balance multi-cluster systems across three different panels, it's, it's a huge technical hurdle. Um, there's a lot of syncing that goes into place. There's, there's a lot of optimization that goes as far as the uh, server's ability to communicate safely. We have a lot of private information moving around and being able to do it inside of private networks and with, with the right security checks was, was incredibly important to us. At the same time, GDPR came out, so we had to make sure that we were always up to date on those standards. The largest development in our platform was probably the movement from that one server to that 12 server plus setup. Where now instead of just having everyone go to one server and hoping it can handle it, now it goes through a Cloudflare proxy which gets split up through a couple Nginx that gets divided up into a, th a three cluster web server which goes out and talks to a two cluster billing server which goes out and talks to a three cluster panel server, all of which combine and talk to the same SQL database which is imaged across different regions so as far as speed is efficient. And then when on the back side of it now we have various repos established kind of like CDNs in order to give our now 1200 node network all the updates that they require to stay up to date. There's a lot of different types of tools in this industry. It's not just a single game as you would think of it. It's a game of games. And um, those mods that kind of create the extra game profiles are always changing. And so being able to create an automated system that can scrape the internet for all of these tools that are being created and then pulling them in, automatically formatting them, and then automatically deploying them out to all of our 1200 nodes across 16 regions was really kind of a technical hurdle for us. We were able to achieve it by leveraging a tool called um, Salt, which allowed us to kind of manage multiple nodes from a single system. Uh, getting improved SSH key type login structures with all of our nodes, because initially we were just doing raw like SSH into one node, work on it, log out, go to the sheet, grab another login, SSH into another node, do that. So it was very, very manual. 
And it wasn't until we automated these processes to where we were able to get these scripts to be able to auto-generate our servers to where we were able to send a single command and update you know, over a thousand nodes at once that we really started to be able to, to grasp the scale of the company and to really allow it to grow at a, at a significantly different rate than it was before. I mean, over the last two years alone, as we've launched this, this cluster system and we've been, had increased stability, we've been able to grow 300% two years in a row. And this year, we're looking to probably do the same. Tell me about how you built your team and what did you look for in those people to make them, you know, to indicate that they were the winning horses to join Apex? So our market is very niche. It means that we can't necessarily always get the best candidate, technically speaking. But that's okay, ultimately, if you look at it kind of by a Ray Dalio's principles concept. The best person isn't necessarily the one who has all of the code knowledge to us. That can be trained over time. For us, it came down to this things that got us into this field, the love of the game. Every single person on our team is uh, just deeply, deeply integrated into the gaming sphere. We use this as a litmus test against applications to be able to determine whether or not they're going to mesh in, if they have the heart that we're looking for, really. Our game is made up, it's, it's a little over 10 years old. It's made up of people that have been playing it since they were 9, 10, 11 years old. Now they're turning 18, 23, that kind of age range. And they're looking to kind of get a professional experience leveraging you know, some technical skills that they have developed over their life. The issue is though, is the type of person that's playing these games isn't always the type of person you want to hire. For us, what we end up realizing is we wanted to find people that were looking at it a little bit more of a problem-solving managerial type approach. There's the person that hops in and plays a game, and then there's the person that hops in and tries to understand how the game works, and they try to push the limits of the game, and they go online, and they go to forums, and they talk to other people that are trying to hack the game, so to speak, and in doing so, they learn all these technical differences, and now they start picking up a little bit of code knowledge, maybe. They probably have already got online into some sort of community based around this interest where they have connections and experience. This often shows itself to us as people that have tried different tiers of the gaming experience. There is playing it as a user, there's playing it as the manager, and then there's trying to take it to compact it together and trying to offer it as a game service where they try to get users and they try to run it like a small company. Even in a lot of these cases, there'll be people that have actually created competitor companies to us and those companies failed because they lacked the technical and marketing acumen that we do. And we just have been consistent over seven years. Uh, we'll have our seven-year anniversary here in September. My brother went to uh, Harvard for a little bit to take some classes, and I asked him, what's the difference? Why are, they, why are they so much better than us? And he responds, they're not better than us. They're just more interested than we are. Every single one of them, when they go to class, they're not just reading it for the first time. When they go home, they're looking up their topic. When they're on the train on the way to work, they're on their phone looking up their topic. They have RSS feeds sending them pings of latest updates in their field. They're, they're naturally obsessed with the information that revolves around the topic which they love, and they just happened to apply it to an education environment, and that's why Ivy League is Ivy League. And similarly, we looked for people that were passionate about this industry. Uh, we look for people that have made an impact in the field. We look for people that have been involved in it and see it from different angles. And most importantly, we look for people that are self-taught that can give us really strong examples of how they found a system that they didn't understand and they were able to, through a connection of Googling, of, of talking to friends in Discord or Slack or independent study through books, have, have found the solutions and are able to architect to us their answers in a way that's logical and makes sense and overcomes a certain thing that they didn't quite know how to do in the beginning. 
our, our vision is to create an atmosphere of people or, or, or a team of people that are deeply passionate about not only video games, but the technical concepts behind video games, while also being huge proponents independently of independent learning so that we can reinforce our company's positioning of being the strongest education platform for game hosting. Let's let's talk about scalability a little bit, and and you know there's been details that you've touched on with the MVP and progressing the product around how you scaled this, but dive into it a little bit more. Did you build this to scale efficiently as you progressed it, or was is it something you're still fighting to this day? I believe that the idea of doing a, a hosting company is to scale a company. You always think about oh, it's just servers. We'll just fill them up and add more servers. But as far as if we developed it initially, the MVP to scale. No, we kind of just did it as we went. And that's more along the lines, not because we didn't want to do it, it was we didn't really know how to do it yet. There's a lot of benefits that you get from doing a, a company in an industry that you have experience in. You're able to kind of skip that initial rotation of, of when you learned how to do the system. But for a lot of us who ended up deciding to just kind of jump in, provide the best service we can, and then improve it day on, day out until seven years down the road, you have a highly competitive product. You don't really know how to position yourself for those inevitable hurdles that you're going to overcome. So for us, that was the case. Uh, a good example of this is in the very beginning when we were adding various game packs, or in this case, the games that modify the core game are very large. They have to be uploaded over FTP, and it takes a lot of time. And on setup, people want to have the game pack that they checked out, and they want they don't want a long setup time. They don't want to have to log in, figure it out, set it up. They just want to be able to log in, and it just it works out of the box. So we were doing that manually for them and quick enough until our sales you know, started topping 100 and stuff a day. And we're not really able to, to handle it manually anymore. So we created an automatic tool to just automate the entire process. And now when they check out, it's just already there. And so that's, that's one minor kind of ironing out a wrinkle, which helped us scale a little bit faster. The same thing with our, our node networks structure, to be able to go from a single node into a, a multi-cluster system. We didn't really know when we were going to do it. We knew we needed it, but it wasn't until our PHP INI files were topping out connections, and we realized that we were having a consistent issue here when we were processing all of our cron payments and stuff. It was just, it couldn't handle the, the volume of payments going through. So we had to kind of pull out the understanding for this out of nowhere. A lot of this is hard work. A lot of this is luck. We've been very fortunate to be able to find in our search for these these people that are highly talented and, and invest in this field. We get lots of applications and occasionally true all-stars show up. So it's almost providence. It's it's a little surprising on how it works, but it's just the, the faith to push through it and find a technical solution you can and then accept the windfalls when they arise. So as you step out on the balcony and look across what you've built with Apex, what are you most proud of? I'd say hands down, it's the team. We've got a team of 30 people at this point, and they're distributed as far as um, Australia and Hungary and Iceland and Vegas. They're distributed all across the world. But we've somehow been fortunate enough to find people that are, are very kind-hearted, that are very diligent, they're very trustworthy, they're very passionate. And the teamwork that they've been able to kind of create together through this common love of the game has given them this familiarity, which is probably impossible for other purely online organizations. We have a really fortunate opportunity to be able to play video games together as team building activities based around the entire positioning of our company that helps educate people in the company. So we very often will hop into a game and play together to be able to not only get time together, but to be able to learn together. 
this kind of environment of people that know how to turn off and play while always being technically aware and, and learning and then parlaying that over to a support system. I mean, in the end of the day, we're teaching Linux server hosting to 12-year-olds. And it takes a certain caliber of, of technical support to be able to understand how the system is working and how to technically solve the issue while communicating it with a 12-year-old who just wants it fixed. With that, there's also our development team who come from a similar background. Every single person in our company started as the entry-level support, technical support system, and over the course of four or five years have um, been promoted and learned more independent learning. They taught themselves how to code. We gave them a side project. They got better and better until now they lead our entire development department. We've had multiple stories like that within our own company that has just shown us the, the caliber of those people and the kind of the dedication that they're giving to us. And that's probably our most valuable asset as an organization. That's such a cool thing to have the company mission and to be able to sort of bond around it too, to take breaks, to play together. I think that's a really great and unique opportunity for your, your team culture there. I'm sure that leads to closer teammates, uh, speed of trust, things like that. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. So there's two big mistakes probably that we've made. Um, one of them is quick mention. It's just our URL. The website itself, when we first built the company and the positioning of it, we were focusing a lot on keyword-based marketing. And the idea of stuffing keywords into a URL was pretty popular at the time back in 2012, 2013. So we chose to do it, which is a bit of an issue now, because as we're growing and maturing as a company in Minecraft, we're ready to take on new games and to do different things. Uh, and that becomes a bit of a hurdle with a URL that has Minecraft in it. So the pivot of that and how we're going to be able to do that handoff is the greatest unknown in our company right now. And we have our marketing team working overtime to be able to kind of figure out the best way to efficiently hand this over, when we should hand it over, should we ever hand it over, and kind of the logistics around that has probably been our biggest mistake um, over the course of our company that we're looking to kind of remedy. Technically speaking, though, it would be, again, those software that don't always update on your own time frame. There's always quirks to them and always unknown things that these people are coding because it's outside of your hands. But not too long ago, we had a very large update to the platform and we took it live and it created an update to the payment gateway system. We launched it, we waited a period of time, we got reviews from the forums and stuff like that, and sure enough, it looked, it looked okay, so we updated to it. But after a couple of weeks, we realized there was something wrong with it. It ended up being kind of a little technical quirk in the platform, and to be able to determine the timing of that technique took us just, just weeks in itself, and we had to notify the main programmer who developed the software, and they didn't even know what was happening. They took them weeks to be able to figure out why it was happening. And in the process, we, we, we had a lot of disruption to our billing platform, which is probably the scariest thing for any company. We ended up learning how to be a little bit slower on some of these gateway type structures and to focus more on things that we make versus things that we're getting from other people. Getting a deeper understanding of how that works has allowed us to get a stronger foundation for when we make our own custom panel here this year. But it also taught us a lot about our own system and kind of some things we do and don't have to be aware of, the limitations of it, and just further reinforced our roadmap to be able to develop a replacement as soon as possible. You know, I, I see this across startups that the longer they're in existence, the more customization is required because that becomes your competitive advantage, right? You've got, you've got to build it in such a way that you see fit and not be diluted from a sort of generalization, if that makes sense, of, a, of another framework. 
um, so definitely, definitely see that. What's the future look like for your product and for the team? The future for Apex hosting is primarily to enter into other games. Currently, we're focusing purely in Minecraft, and although it's the world's largest game and we've been able to grow with the great success of the game over the last decade, and it, it has a very long-term outlook, Microsoft says it's gonna, they want it to turn into that 100-year brand like Mario or Zelda or any of those types of assets. While that's always been a foundation, will probably always be a core of our company, we realize a huge value in hosting other games. We use a lot of our keyword research to be able to find out alternative game hosting opportunities and our roadmap in order to set up ourselves for the, the most trafficked one and then the next one and then the next one and the next one until eventually we just have all of them. This is really cool when you're talking B2C type businesses and our ability to kind of understand that we have instant value once these games are being provided, which we've already worked in the background. We already have these set up. We're ready to provide them. It just now comes down to a, a node issue. Our systems are all Linux using CentOS 7, while the new system has to be Windows running Linux, which kind of gives us a little bit of a network issue. So while we're working through unifying these systems using a Docker type setup, we kind of can't launch. While we're working through that, we're establishing more opportunities as far as traffic is concerned and our ability to position ourselves internationally. We know that multilingual is very important for our future and to be able to provide support multilingually is very important. But for our long term, we're really focusing on the ability to run very large server systems, many tens of thousands of connections at a time to a single node. And our goal is to be able to provide a, a large enough infrastructure where we can start moving into indie game hosting and eventually larger game studio hosting. That B2B type environment is where we see the 100 million brand opportunities existing for us. So uh, that'll be within our, our roadmap probably for the next two or three years. Longer term opportunity for us that we see right now is the infinite opportunity for augmented reality. Inherently, game server hosting is very similar to augmented reality hosting. All we're doing is hosting digital assets on a server and allowing you to connect to it remotely. To be able to have a decade's worth of experience hosting 3D models and doing that level of technical support that's going to be required to onboard a world of people to a new type of visual technology is going to be our really core asset in the next you know, 5 to 15 years, we believe. Let's switch to you, Seth. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really, really any person that you look up to and why? So initially, my entire path as an entrepreneur was probably focused around my love for Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. This is a seminal text for most entrepreneurs and teaches you a lot about the scalable architectures of modern-day companies and the ability to use remote assistance and the concept of how to be most efficient with your time. It's about outsourcing. It's about uh, Pareto's principle, the 80-20. It's about all these core things that a lot of us don't really know to focus on initially as we're obsessed with just tasks. And so that was probably my first uh, love of entrepreneurship and kind of showed me the way. It took about a half a decade to be able to develop it. And then from that point, it ended up being not only how to, how to make the system, but also it's very much about how to get people to see the system. You need to get people into it. You need to be able to position your software in the market in a way that's desirable and different and stuff like that. Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V, ended up becoming a really big influence of mine about a year or two ago as well in this kind of capacity. I, I read all of his books ended up helping my ex-girlfriend get a job with him. It was a very big influence on me. I would watch his podcasts every single day. And basically, I started to really follow his content model 
there's this really cool micro content distribution model that he's made. It's a deck and we used it for my other company, OPC, to create a podcast very similar to this one, where we would use it as a pillar piece of content and then cut it down into many other pieces of content. So for example, we would take a podcast and we would live stream the podcast. So you would get the video on Twitch and then we put it onto YouTube and onto Facebook gaming and onto to Mixer all at the same time. And that would be recorded. Then we would compress it to a podcast and then we would turn it into excerpts and trailers and thumbnails. And you know, we, we would create 30 pieces of content from this one interview using that to create something very specific to our brand and learning how to create that story brand concept really became the most influential part of my ability to build an online brand. In the beginning, we were making software and tools and websites. But after the understanding that Gary Vee gave me and some of these other books, I learned how to create a brand that will last and that kind of really resonates with people. Being a the, the former finance major that I am, I end up really enjoying Ray Dalio's principles the concepts of how he built his company and the way that he operates as a person and the radical honesty of his organization have uh, really been a shining light to how we develop our own team. And I, I just could not recommend all three of their work enough. Well, if you could go back to the beginning of Apex, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? The one thing that I would choose to do differently from Apex is probably to spend more than one weekend building the company. We were very proud of it in the beginning, you know, quick MVP. We, we, we made dozens of MVPs at the time. Uh, we, we made well into 100 websites of different opportunities. Only a few of them actually stick. But when we were working on it, we were very much just, all right, minimum, let's do it. Let's go see if it works. All right, it's working. You know, we would do the four-hour workweek principles of building an MVP, running an ad on it, see if people buy, if it works, put a little bit more into it. And, it, and, and that kind of system helped setting it up so that we were always efficiently moving by data. But we didn't necessarily lead by developing and designing and branding as much as I think we should have at the beginning, most notably because we just didn't know it as well yet. We didn't really know the concepts of how to build that uh, positioning based on brand story. We, we didn't really know how to ask in the most efficient ways. And we didn't really know this, the concepts of scalability as far as a decade is concerned. We really did think that we would just have a couple years out of this, you know, Minecraft would be fun. But over the course of a decade, it's proven to be a, a, an extremely viable business opportunity that can pivot into a much larger industry. So if we had spent a little bit more time there in the beginning, we would have had the foresight to be able to think of alternative game hosting, which would have given us twofold, one, a better URL, but uh, two, it would have helped us probably spent a little bit more time developing the platforms themselves and potentially investing a little bit more into a slightly more customized solution, which would allow us to more easily offer these alternate games. So that, that core configuration itself, just through lack of, uh, of foresight, was probably the one thing I would change. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? that it takes a lot of different skill sets to get through different stages. It takes a, a much different skill sets to get to 1 million than it does to get to 10 million. When we started, it was very much 90% tasks and just 10% team. But as we've grown, we end up having to invert that ratio so that we're spending a lot more time on our team than we are on tasks. And that ended up being the most important tool for us to be able to scale from 1 million to 10 million. The tools behind that are really what makes it possible. You gotta document everything your workflows. You need to be reviewing it constantly, investing in the people and retrain them on these workflows and just keep that iterative process and don't take your eyes off of it. 
it's it's easy to get distracted with the glitz and the fame and and the numbers and the sales of the day that end up going up and down seasonally. But if you're constantly just focusing on these workflows and doing that iterative process and documenting everything, then you'll end up having the infrastructure required to be able to scale past 10 million. And then at that point, you're looking for the highest quality team that you can to be able to actually put you into that 100 million scale as well. Well, that's great advice. Well, Seth, thank you for being on Code Story. Thank you for telling the creation story of Apex Hosting. Sure. No, I really appreciate you taking the time to help us tell our story. It was a lot of fun doing it. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.